This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth, cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, music historian David Stubbs joins Nate to discuss his book, Future Sounds, the story of electronic music from Stockhausen to Skrillex. The discussion ranges from the first conceptual beginnings of electronic music in the European avant-garde to Stevie Wonder's pioneering use of synths in the 70s to the conquest of the music world by EDM in the 21st century. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by author David Stubbs. The book is Future Sounds, the story of electronic music from Stockhausen to Skrillex. David, welcome. Hi there. Thanks for coming on. This is a broad topic. You you picked a wide net, and you actually could have put uh, from Francis Bacon to Skrillex if uh, if you've been... Technically, yes, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Yes, there's a first, yes. And you start this quote from Francis Bacon that I hadn't been aware of before. Mm. From six, it was published in 1626 posthumously. It's from his utopian mm. tract, New Atlantis. And uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it. It says, We have sound houses where we practice and demonstrate all sounds in their generation. We have harmonies, which you have not, of quarter sounds and lesser slides of sounds. Diverse instruments of music, likewise to you unknown. Some sweeter than any you have, together with bells and rings that are dainty and sweet. We represent small sounds as great and deep. Likewise, great sounds extenuate and sharp. We make diverse tremblings and warblings of sounds, which in their original are entire. We represent and imitate all articulate sounds and letters and the voices and notes of beasts and birds. This is incredible. I mean, Francis Bacon yeah. in, in the 17th, 16th century is prophesizing the music of the 20th and 21st century uh, without any yeah. notion of electronics. Um, and and the, no, the, con- 
Yeah, and the connection uh, that uh, you say that a copy of this passage that the woman Daphne Oram had nailed to the wall in her workplace. Tell us a little bit about Daphne Oram. Well, Daphne Oram started um, working life at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, uh, which is also where Delia Derbyshire, who's also very kind of sort of famous, iconic, um, also worked. I mean, what's fascinating is that um, as a woman, she was able to kind of work very freely and um, creatively um, in an institution like that, even though I'm sure she faced a great deal of condescension. Um, at the Dina Derbyshire, a lot of people just thought they were creating special effects. In fact, they were kind of creating prototypes for the kind of electronic sound script in which we live today. But um, Daphne Warren had, um, yeah, immense interest to her, so she was looking back at centuries. I think she understood that a lot of the kind of ideas that are kind of prevalent in electronic music are actually embedded in ancient times, really, possibly at some distant kind of way. People have been wistfully dreaming about this kind of thing for a long, long time. That, you know, in a sense that electronic music was a means of unlocking these kind of um, possible kind of future worlds, future possibilities or whatever, future capacities. Um, she eventually left um, the um, BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Um, she found it too sort of restricting and started working on her own music and her own system, like Oramics. Um, it was to do with this idea that you could somehow transcribe sounds made by kind of notations made on screens, all those lines. Um, and, yeah, and I think that, I mean, Delia Derbyshire has become fairly well known since she died. Daphne or on next, less so. But I think both of these figures are very, very important because what's great about electronic music, a lot of people think it's the kind of the province of, like, nerds and um, electroheads and people like that, a very male kind of preoccupation. So it is in lots of ways. However, I'm always heartened by the number of um, women involved in this particular scene, particularly nowadays, uh, my theory is that it's because it's less gendered is electronic music than rock music. It's more kind of open. You know, you've got these kind of open fields of sounds and open possibilities. You don't have to kind of strike a pose or whatever. And, um, yeah, for that reason, yeah, I think that it'd be, you know, one of the great things about writing a book like this is getting people to go back and revisit again and, and find out all about someone like Daphne around. Yeah, and and Orem is interesting, but Derbyshire it seems like had a had a massive impact on the UK pop scene through her yeah. uh, soundtrack for Doctor Who. Well, absolutely. I mean, as a child, this and like many other, would have been the first piece of like electronic music of music conquering whatever process music um, that we'd ever heard without really knowing what it was. It was just some kind of unearthly concoction that seemed appropriate for the show. Um, she also, I mean, this is what the BBC Radio Shop did. You know, they they you know they took these kind of techniques of like cutting up bits of tape, manipulating sounds or whatever, and creating something new out of them. Um, there was also a show called John Craven's News Round, the kids. And there was a little bit at the end that went do 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 which is kind of <laughs> embedded in pretty much every child from the 1970s head. Um, and that was a creation of the Radiophonic Workshop as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of she definitely had this kind of role in popularizing electronic music, but the only thing was that people didn't really quite know what it was, and she was very self-effacing. Um, there's this wonderful clip, an audio piece from her from about 1971, I think it is, or thereabouts, and she starts off saying, um, you can just hear in the studio saying, ah, don't worry, this is no consequence, uh, it's of no, no, no importance. And then you start hearing what sounds like the Apex Twin or some piece of techno from the 
1990s. So she's just thrown out this kind of fragment as a little experiment. And it's anticipating you know, the media 20 odd years later. Um, but, you know, perhaps she just didn't always realise just what a significant creative force she was. Yeah, I mean, I think at, at the very least, the Doctor Who soundtrack seems to have had a big subliminal impact on the generation mm. of British pop music yeah. musicians who brought Our electronic book, yeah. music in. And that's certainly true. The Human yeah. League, you know, they would have, in the late 70s, would have, um, um, you know, done a version of Doctor Who. So, yes, I think among actual musicians who then decided to kind of explore these sounds, then yes, I think like the Doctor Who sound, that was one of the very, very few inklings that they had of the kind of possibilities out there. And, and we'll go back to the sort of chronological history of, of electronics music and pop music as it intersects. And England definitely, to me, dominates it. I mean, you know, as far as popularizing electronic music, but the theory mm. of electronic music, it seems like uh, a lot of it, it came from uh, Central Europe and the Americas. But before I get there, you've got some, you've got two prefaces in this book and an introduction, and you've got some pretty big ideas in here. And I want to throw some of them at you and get you to elaborate on them. There's one thing that you say in, in the first preface that electronic music feels less, quote, real, less organic, less heroic, more schematic, and heartlessly methodical to those wary of it. That's one of the underlying themes of the book. Elaborate on that. I mean, do you feel like that's a fair assessment or sort of a, a phobic, irrational fear of electronic music? Oh, I mean, there's certainly always been um, electrophobia, and there was kind of, you know, deep, deep suspicion, especially when it began to get popular in the 1960s and 1970s, um, when it was really first becoming disseminated. And yeah, people thought it was cheating. So, I mean, the group Queen, for example, on the back of all of their albums that they made in the 70s, they, they get kind of cameras with them. None of the sounds that we made, that made on this um, album were made using synthesizers. It was all real, inverted commas, instruments. And yeah, which is union. Which is ironic because they did so many tape loops that you could almost call yeah. some of their peak period albums electronic music. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is the thing. I mean, you know, then by the 80s, I mean, just the use of like, you know, they all kind of meld, you know, what, what's using the studio and what's electronic. It's all a bit kind of blurry, really. But no, there was definitely this fear about, um, you know, inauthenticity, cheating. I mean, one of the great things about electronic music what I think is a great thing, is that it's something that you approach conceptually. You don't necessarily have to be a virtuoso. And I think that, you know, this is something people find a little bit suspicious, really, about electronic music. They used to like things like proper instruments like piano, guitar, where you have to sort of practice for years and years and years and become a sort of virtuosity. And that is how you become entitled to call yourself a musician and to be a kind of creative force. But the great thing about electronic is in that you have to think more conceptually. It's about organized sound. It's about what happens when you juxtapose this sound with that sound. What happens when you kind of loop this or whatever. Or what kind of impact you get that way. And it's actually, for me, that's actually more, <laughs> in many ways, more complicated. I mean, people can practice and practice and practice on the piano and never really achieve any particular distinction because there are many, many kind of piano virtuosos out there. But doing something like this and doing it really, really well, and frankly, a lot of people are, really requires an extraordinary kind of leap of imagination and the machines are simply a kind of you know a conduit to that. And and the preface you also talk about something that 
references the title of the book, Future Sounds. And you say the title implies it alludes to something that was lost in the 20th century at some unspecified postmodern moment, an idealism about the future and all that it might contain. Explain that a little bit. In a sense, I write this book in a kind of spirit of like lamentation for the 20th century. I'm one of a lot of people never quite gotten along, maybe it's my age would say, but never quite gotten along with the 21st century. The fact that we're in this kind of post-space age, I think, is rather sad. You know, the fact that we're celebrating 50 years since we went to the moon and, and that that particular project faltered or whatever. Um, in the UK, the book's title is Mars by 1980, because that was the dream at that point. That we've done the moon now, now we're going up to Mars. But there would continue to be this kind of cosmic expansion, but then it didn't take faltered. It was almost like limits of human capacity were revealed. But the wonderful thing about the early 20th century is, I mean, the, the people like, I like the futurists in based in Italy around 1930. And now, unfortunately, they were fascists, which is like an unfortunate thing. But in a way, they, they, they still had this ideal of like human beings exceeding their limited capacity using machinery because of all the inventions you're getting at that point, like, you know, the bike, x-rays, all this kind of thing, um, motor vehicles. And they thought, well, the sky isn't even the limit, really, as far as I was concerned. And the art of noises manifesto, which was by Luigi Russolo, was calling for a new set of instruments that would kind of reflect um, this new world of noise, of industrial noise in which people were living, um, and saying that, like the old, you know, sawing away on orchestral instruments was no longer adequate. Um, you know, we had to find a whole new mode of expression to express this potentially giant evolutionary stride the 20th century is going to represent. Now, they're, they're, the, the instruments that they created, these kind of noise instruments, were a little bit inadequate, really, but they were as an idea, it was a very effective prototype. And then people carried that idea on, like composers like Edgar Perez, who's the French composer, is writing orchestral music that is clearly dreaming and bursting at the seams, you know, these vast, vast words like Amérique. It really is yearning for some instrument that will allow him to kind of get beyond the full orchestra. And finally, um, people like Stockhausen in Germany, when um, using pure electronics after the war, which becomes an available technique, and Pierre Schaeffer in France, when he gets hold of magnetic tape and finds ways of kind of manipulating, um, you know, you can basically go out, acquire a sound, manipulate it, and making it wherever you want. I mean, that's a whole new mode of expression for, 20, for the second half of the 20th century. I mean, what I was find retrospectively a little bit sad is that at the time, they were just working almost like laboratory conditions. They seemed utterly indifferent to the idea that all this music would become popularized. And in fact, when electronics did become popularized, both Pierre Schaefer and Stockhausen were quite contentious of it because I think they were thinking of something far, far more radical in its implications than just, I don't know, the Apex Twin or whatever. But yeah, so, so there was this idealism um, which permeated those kind of like ex- lonely extremes that, uh, 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 in these pioneers of the avant-garde. Um, but it's one which I don't think that they felt would ever fully realise. When you listen to um, pieces like Pierre Schaeffer, like Symphony Corps Ensemble, or very early Stockhausen, Etudes or whatever, they've got this wonderful ancient sort of grainy effect. It's like the idea of listening back to futures that might have been or whatever, lost futures, the kind of hauntological sort of sense to it, really. Things that were ideas of utopias or whatever that were never fully realized because people weren't quite up to whatever or things just didn't pan out that way. And let's hear a snippet of Stockhausen. This is from his uh, masterpiece, Gesang der Jungelange. Mm-hmm. 
which I'm totally mispronouncing, but this is Carl Heinz Stockhausen. <laughs> Karl-Heinz Stockhausen's Gesang der Junglinge. And this was uh, 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 an avowed influence on the Beatles, Paul McCartney especially, and, and their tracks like Tomorrow Never Knows and Revolution mm. 9 uh, uh, bear that out. Tell us, how was this music made? What was Stockhausen doing to make these sounds? Oh, to be honest, um, <laughs> the sheer, I couldn't do justice myself, not really being a kind of technician to the kind of, you know, what, what was actually going on. But this was sourced from a young um, chorus, and it's, 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 I think it's reciting texts from, um, um, you know, the old, like Daniel and I and Dan and everything like that. And um, um, it's, I mean, it's just extraordinary, really, the, the kind of, multiple splicing that is going on, you know, like taking these kind of recordings and, and threading them through whatever and making them kind of recede and then suddenly attack or whatever. Um, you know, these are the kind of um, effects that he was, that even with the limited technology that he had at the time, and, you know, a lot of it was kind of meticulous. It was, you know, it involved scissors and tape or whatever. And yet extraordinary, you know, effects, you know, through sheer patience could be achieved that could probably be done now um, with contemporary technology, perhaps almost too easily, really. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was, I think generally with Stockhausen in his works, it was the idea, and if you listen to you really find this view in a large concert hall or something like this, and you listen to it on multiple speakers, it's the sense that music is no longer in some sort of notional center anymore. It's flying at you from all kinds of angles. It can come from anywhere. You know, it's, it's, focuses, you know, it doesn't have that same sort of linear um, predictable kind of progression, you know, of, of, of your traditional acoustic music. Now, you know, it's almost like on a cosmic scale, you know, it's almost like, you know, watching the Northern Lights, something like that, or even more so, etc. And, you know, and I think that just expanding the vocabulary and the sort of dimensionality of music is something that was able to demonstrate, like I say, using what was probably relatively limited technology, technology that needs a lot of light like, within its kind of infancy, really. Um, and it also wasn't actually intended necessarily for the purposes that you put it to, but just with this kind of immense vision and this imagination, this conviction of um, what a kind of post-war music could be, which he especially felt coming out of Germany and West Germany and the idea of the which he was very, very traumatized, obviously, by World War II, and he lost both his parents in the war. He'd been forced to become a Hitler youth. He'd seen terrible things working as an ambulance worker in the, in the very late stages of the war. And I just think that he just felt that in 1945 he wanted to create a tabula rasa in year zero, create something entirely original um, that was kind of clean and unspotted and sort of nothing to do with no, no, no past reference, you know, no, especially in particular fallen world that he just emerged from. And and his impact was felt, and, you know, like I, I said, ironically, in pop music, perhaps more than so in concert music uh, and, and mm. fine art world. But in, in your book, you structure it such that the first part covers this, you know, 
early prehistory and, and goes through Varese and Stockhausen and John Cage and, and these people who sort of figured out the conceptual parameters. But then in part two is essentially African-American music. And, and uh, you know, you talk yeah. about jazz greats like Sun Ra and Miles Davis, who who adapted electronic music in very different ways. But you also throw in Derbyshire and Orem in there. What What's the yeah. logical consistency that connects uh, Derbyshire to Stevie Wonder? Well, that's an interesting question. I think it was probably uh, really because of the proximity um, of them time-wise. And I suppose that pop-wise, they merged slightly because um, Dilly Goshi was involved in this group White Noise, um, who made this wonderful um, um, album in the late 1960s. Um, and she creates these extraordinarily, almost like three-dimensional psychedelic effects that really um, you know, add, add a whole other dimension in a particular album that's that even something like Pink Floyd aren't able to achieve just using kind of frazzled guitars or whatever. And that occurs in 1960. Now, what's interesting is Stevie Wonder, but then what occurred the year previously was the Moog synthesizer had come along. It was um, premiered, I think, at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. Now, what's interesting about that is that um, it's almost like saying, this is the future, this instrument. But it's not the present. In 1967, people weren't quite ready for popular music to be completely supplanted by a synthesizer. It was still the great golden age of the great rock hero, the honest, you know, sweaty sort of male posturing virtuoso rock hero. That was very much the sort of dominant trope or whatever. And that still had to kind of you know, be worked through, you know, it's like Led Zeppelin and things like that to come. And so, consequently, the Moog synthesizer got kind of sidelined. It was also quite expensive. It was difficult to get hold of. And so it had a very peripheral role, a sort of add-on role in popular music in the late 1960s. You know, you'll hear of this in a Simon Garfunkel record, say, The Life of My Child. The Monkees use it. The Beach Boys use it. The Beatles themselves use a bit of it on Abbey Road, but it's certainly not the central instrument on, on that particular album. Stevie Wonder, um, he... Was he just left Motown? He was looking to kind of establish himself as a solo artist in the seventies, and uh, the way that Marvin Gaye had, and he he, he contacts Tonto's expanding headband, who these guys Bob Margaret and Malcolm Cecil, and he's just absolutely astonished. They work with the Arp Moog synthesizers, and he is just absolutely enthralled by these instruments. You know, he's blind, and he's actually sort of he just just finds kind of just drawing his hands along the sides of these kind of great things an absolutely fascinating thing. They're like nothing he's encountered before. And of course, sound-wise, he has the patience in the way that people like the Who could draw a very temperamental instrument at that time, and people like Pete Townsend did use them a little bit, but they were just so temperamental as this artist. And Stevie Wonder, who, in his, <laughs> he, he would just, day and night, didn't really mean a great deal to him. He would just be happy to kind of work for hours and hours in a very kind of immersive way. And on the albums from Music of My Mind right through to Songs in the Key of Life, um, he creates this whole new sound world for soul music, which is, and what he understands, what he shows us for all time, basically, is that electronics aren't this kind of cold, mechanical, inhumane thing. That, they can, that you can create this kind of warm, emotional, sensual music that can convey in a way that conventional music instruments aren't really quite able to. Um, elation, melancholy, um, this whole gamut, this whole sort of liquid gamut of emotions, these dark, 
cool the sound. Um, and I mean, this is one of my great epiphanies when I was up in my mid-teens was um, Stevie Wonder. Um, and just listening to my music in my mind was an absolute, and listening to the full album and then followed by Talking Book, you know, um, and Inner Visions in particular, and just immersing myself, you know, in this sort of vast but very, very soulful range of electronic music. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that was just foundational because, you know, after that, you know, everything's like jamming those prints or whatever, um, are, are really drawing on what he established. And you talk about uh, Wonder's use of the vocoder, which you know people associate with Peter Frampton and also Kraftwerk. And you talk about how like some groups like Kraftwerk, who weren't especially strong vocalists, used it to to amplify their voices. But that um, their meaningful small voices is the phrase you use. But you say that Wonder and Troutman create a vocal style that is superhuman, that demonstrates how machinery multiplies rather than destroys soul. I, I just love that uh, analysis of that because there's. Yeah, yeah, it's very, yeah uh, you know, elaborate on that a little bit. Like, uh, um, actually, let's go ahead and hear some Stevie Wonder. Let's hear Too High from Inner Visions. great Stevie Wonder from uh, one of his masterpieces, Inner Visions. And, and I don't think it can be underestimated the impact on the musical world and world culture that Stevie Wonder had, because here you've got a, a popular artist at the peak of his creative powers who goes on this incredible five-album run of just masterpiece after masterpiece and really shows, like you say, that, that electronic music can can is soulful and, and can be organic and integral to a, a masterpiece. But one thing that Stevie left out was the drums. Stevie played yeah. the drums himself often, but always used a kit, never a drum machine. This is the ironic thing. In a sense, I always feel that like Steve, because, you know, the drums are like a little superstition. It's, it's fairly kind of rudimentary. And so when, say, something like, um, Donna Summer comes along with I Feel Love, the George Moroder um, sound, and you suddenly got that kind of sequencer-driven thing, and then the emphasis is suddenly on the electronic rhythm, it's almost like he, he's, he's a bit left high and dry. He did one or two things. He did a track called Race Babbling on Secret Journey to the Secret Life of Plants. But when it's extraordinary, he's only in his mid-twenties, and he falls relatively silent, really. But that's sometimes the way we innovators. It's the same with Kraftwerk, whatever. You know, there came a certain point where their work was done, and they, didn't, you know, they spent the, you know, lengthy decades in the moment of their lives really just touring, just revisiting those few years of... Um, and yeah, there, there are worse fates. I mean, you could be the Eagles uh, out yeah. there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> reprising their work. <laughs> of course, it's yeah. very lucrative. Yeah. Uh, but mm. yes, and so, so that was part two of your book. And then part three, you mentioned craft work. And so part three, you cover craft work. Um, you also cover uh, Suicide and the Pet Shop Boys, The Art of the Duo. Yeah. And and to mm. me, part three, I don't, I don't have any questions because and then you culminate part three with the conquest of the british pop scene by electronica so let's let's break that yeah. down you start with suicide which was a yeah 
often called a punk duo. They called themselves punk, but kind of before the term became totally codified. But it's a two-man duo. It's it's a vocalist and a synthesizer player. Tell us a little bit about yeah. that and how that became such an archetype for electronic groups. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I think, and again, I think that they came from a sort of avant-garde art background in very different ways. And, um, you know, they, they were operating in New York years before they made their debut album, which is 1977. And yeah, and you look at that thing, um, punk music from Suicide, they were playing live with just a sort of basic vocal and some sort of plastic organ type thing set up in a cheap drum machine. And what I suppose they were, again, thinking conceptually, they're rock and roll in extremists. They're not anti-rock, they're rock and roll in extremists. Too rock and roll for a lot of rock and roll people, which is, you know, so when they toured with a lot of punks and people like that would clash, or whatever, a lot of the audiences were confounded by them and they got a very hostile reception. You know, they were too, punk was supposed to be all about going back to basics, but this was going back too far to basics as far as even punks were concerned. But yeah, so, um, yeah, this, this brilliant conception that Alan Vega almost sounds like he's channeling the spirit of Elvis, you know, who just died in 1977. It's almost as if Alan Vega from 77 onwards is like, on his, his dead soul or whatever. And Martin Revin is kind of advisors. There's a very yin and yang thing going on. Martin Revin is, is a very kind of stockpile figure just sort of generating these kind of um, drum machine hiss and these very kind of basic looping um, organ riffs or whatever, these synth riffs. And um, it's, um, yeah, yin and yang. That's, that, and I think that's what's making the kind of prototype for groups like, um, um, well, uh, Sparks. I mean, although Sparks kind of were been around since the 70s, they then decided to reduce themselves to a kind of a duo where it's Ron and Russell and, you know, Ron just being almost like hypnotic on the keyboard, looking around in this kind of stiff disdain, and Russell being this kind of like flamboyant presence. You've got it with Vince Clark, you know, and groups like with Erasure and things like that. Pet Shop Boys are a slightly different case. Oh, Soft Cell, of course, with, you know, um, Mark Allman, again, you know, this kind of big sort of flamboyant figure and David Ball, a very kind of stolid presence, you know, reducing everything to kind of, you know, this kind of electronic essence um, on the keyboards. Pet Shop Boys are slightly other case, really, because <laughs> they're, they're both pretty, they're both quite deadpan, but that was a slight kind of exception to the rule. But I mean, suicides were extraordinary. And one of the things I wanted to do in this book was not overprivilege commercial success in electronic music, which is why I don't talk that much about Jean-Michel Jarre, because I don't think he's that interesting, <laughs> um, even though he went on to be the kind of massive global success. A lot of his work is this big sort of sound and light extravaganzas in kind of, you know, far flung places of the world. Suicide struggled their whole life. Um, um, they, under, they underwent kind of, you know, they, they, they made two, two great albums. One, a kind of, very, you know, including uh, the, the Economist debut album, which includes Frankie Teardrop, which is still this extraordinary, hellish 10 or 11 minutes of like sheer electronic noise and this screaming and whooping of this dreadful, tragic tale of like Frankie, doing your old Frankie at, at, at the heart of it. Um, you know, this is music that, you know, that's over 40 years old and still sounds, it's, to some people, you could say it sounds like it's coming from 40 years, 40 years hence. So although they're kind of laying foundations, a lot of the stuff that they're doing still feels like it's from the future. It still feels like, you know, what was, what came after them was a slightly more dilute pop version, uh, which they kind of resented slightly, I think. You know, I think they felt that essentially that people like Soft Cell had just sort of ripped them off or just done a kind of pop version of them, you know, slightly 
there was um, a more kind of lukewarm version, which is you know, fair enough from their point of view. Kind of, they don't quite agree, but um, um, but I just thought it was important to sort of really like you know, to try and set out just how foundational someone like suicide were, and make sure that it's not not one of these accounts of electronic media that just looks at the people that were successful in their particular rags to riches stories or whatever, because suicide is a rags to rags story essentially. And I'm I'm really grateful to you for emphasizing suicide because it'd been maybe a decade, decade and a half, or maybe two decades since I'd listened to them, and I think they really hold up well. At one point in the book, you talk mm-hmm. about 21st century music, and you talk about how the uh, the electronic side of it is doing all kinds of cool things, but it's the human element that lets the music down so often. Mm-hmm. But suicide, you mm-hmm. certainly can't make that point. I mean, the vocals are Absolutely. are cutting and and you you know i put it into some mixes of some music from the 2010s and it really cuts through still i I think it's very modern music that holds up but but one one um album that you didn't mention much if at all that i that i did want to ask about is the clockwork orange soundtrack which you know and many English musicians have cited as a big influence. It was it was synthesized versions of Beethoven, but also some original compositions. Why did you exclude that from your chronicle? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of things are excluded because there's just, as you said at the top show, there's so so much ground to cover. I think perhaps um, the reason I didn't touch on that is that there was a lot of things that switched on fast and things like that, where occasionally you'd have these kind of synth versions of classical music, and that's not something that ever really especially appeals to me. I think that sometimes pop music can be, or, or, or there's a certain kind of music, or a certain way you can use it, can be slightly guilty of thinking that, that it's like Prague had this idea that you're only kind of truly ultimately valid if you have some sort of equivalent to classical music. The classical music represents this supreme form of music and uh, everything else has to kind of prove itself in relation to that. And I, I, I don't know, I, I, I never really... I, I never personally saw the point of synthesized versions of the classics. It didn't really, it always seemed to be the kind of thing that led people to think of like synthesizers essentially kind of gimmicky, really. Um, you know, it's like you could do it on kazoos or something like that. And I'm just interested in the actual, you know, the, 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 sort of the language because of the new lexicon that was created, the new possibility was created as a result of these instruments. So I was always far much more interested in that. The, the the way you know the the the, the extent you know to which you really kind of go seriously into the realms of atonality into the realms of the abstract way way beyond you know the the confines of all the various sort of protocols of classical music and the next group that you cover you cannot deny uh, their influence Kraftwerk who's mm. had a massive oh, yeah. influence on everything from Africa Bambata to house music mm. or Detroit techno music and then you know acid house everything you, you could put almost all modern electronic music as descended from Kraftwerk yeah. in a way do you think that's accurate yeah well yes I mean they do again you know they 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 they, they the foundation they are almost almost single-handedly responsible for the electrification of pop music. As I say, people like Suicide, I think, have a kind of you know, a, a, a role in that as well. But it's classic. This is my favourite story because I also wrote, as well as writing this book, my previous book was called um, Future Days, and that was about um, um, what was called crowd rock. You know, essentially these post-war, these you know, senses experimental music that arose from West Germany. And Kraftwerk, although they were probably incredibly fantastical, Kraftwerk were very much part of that. But what they had, what Kraftwerk had in common with groups like Can, Faust, Neu, 
um, Harmonian groups that were operating at that time is I think that they were in the 60s, in the 1960s in West Germany, there was, you know, there, there was occupation, you know, army occupation by the Americans and the British and whatever, so over there while they were still, you know, helping build the state and the Marshall Plan or whatever. And, and really, young musicians, if you want to make a living, you have to kind of pretty much ape what was ever, whatever was popular in the UK. And one very popular group was called the Rattles, who were like a West German version of the Beatles, where people had to do kind of Motown or soul stuff, you know, depending on who they're playing for, when they're doing kind of gigs, you know, for these kind of um, overseas soldiers. That's the kind of stuff that we have to resort to. And I think that, that in various diverse places, people are almost thinking separately from another, in Dusseldorf, in Cologne, in Hamburg, it occurred to sort of district musicians in Berlin, district musicians, that we need to do what Stockhausen did after the Second World War. We need to create our own tabula rasa. We need to create music that isn't just imitating Anglo-American blues-based beat music. We need something that is, um, crap, we always seven albums, products of West German, Germany, West German in origin. And um, I think that Krapwick were the most commercially successful in terms of doing that. Um, I think that, um, and of course, you know, electronic instruments or electronic or modern use of electronic modification is very, very important in this project to create that sense of originality. And Kraftwerk, after a sort of two or three sort of tentative albums, gradually became this sort of purely electronic group. Um, Autobahn, which is one of the most famous tracks, is notable in the lengthy version for being the very last appearance of Florian Schneider, who was playing a flute. Because when they first started, it was almost like the group band was a uh, the group was a showcase for his flute solos. Uh, he was into very, very early things, but then play anymore from 1971. By 1974, through to about 1986, uh, you know, they create this series of albums, um, which in a sense are reconnecting with the spirit of the Bauhaus movement, um, which ended very abruptly in 1933 with the rise of the Third Reich. And that was this idea of like, melding art and function or whatever and creating this sort of like serene result. And there's a tremendous serenity about craft work in the way that they wrote wrote about like um, cars, computers, radios or whatever. Occasionally sort of under counter ambiguity. But um and you know, and even nuclear power, I suppose that there wasn't nuclear power anymore, it was the radioactivity in terms of the activity of the radio on, on that particular album. Um, <clears throat> but yes, they what was wonderful about them is that when they first emerged, they just seemed to be almost willfully antithetical um, to the rock and roll spirit as represented by something like, say, Bruce Springsteen or something like that. And it's not like Bruce Springsteen. It was all very kind of honest, heartfelt, open net, you know, hollering, sweating, all these kind of things. And that sort of denoted, you know, the quality of, of his activity as a, as a musician, as a rocker. And track with none of these things. They didn't sweat. They wore suits and ties. They had short hair. Um, they, they sang in a very sort of bay way. They played up their kind of Teutonicness or whatever, as if, because people obviously at the time just thought it was ridiculously inherently amusing, the idea of Germans trying to make pop music and rock music. So they had to face down a massive condescension. But I think they played up with that and they realized that. And in the end, they kind of had the last laugh because by the mid 80s, even Bruce Springsteen was using synthesizers. You know, they understood, you know, that this, was eventually going to be the future, and and so it was. Um, not least, and I think they, each of their albums is so immaculate in terms of its conception, in terms of the grass of melody, whatever. That they, you know, they're almost like very, very clear blueprints really for this kind of electro pop future. But you know, other things happened. Um, for instance, I think in the late 1970s, punk came along, and punk was very important because punk blew away a lot of the kind of 
um, ideas about rock music as being essentially virtuoso in nature. Punk scotched that completely. Punk, a bit like electronic music, so look, it's, it's about ideas, it's about concepts, it's about attitudes, it's about going up there and expressing something you want to say, not about how well people play instruments. Meanwhile, synthesizers are coming rapidly down in price, so um, they're suddenly become more... So everything's now becoming more accessible. Punk has made people feel it's easy to come and access a stage and that you don't have to be Emerson, Lake and Palmer, etc. Electronic music and synthesizers saying, look, you don't have to be some tremendous musician, you can create music using these things, whatever. And so all of that happens just as Kraftwerk are kind of coming into their, coming to their own in the late 70s, um, early 80s. And like I say, so by 1986, they made this album Electric Cafe. But by that point, their work was done. Everything by that point, the whole landscape had been kind of electrified. And so there was really no need for them to kind of be sort of acting the profits the way that they had been, you know, since the mid-70s. And I think they understood that, and they've not really recorded any new material, or they, they've recorded very little new, new material since then. And let's hear, speaking of prophets, let's hear from a couple of prophets from that era who, to me, David Bowie and Brian Eno prophesized post-punk, and, and very much, as much as David Bowie, you know, sort of handpicked the history of punk by Champion Iggy and the Stooges and the Velvet Underground and MC5 and other groups and, and sort of laid down the ideology that would become punk, even though he was sort of seen as a glam rock or a rock star dinosaur, mm-hmm. then he goes to Berlin very aware of Kraftwerk, his his persona takes on the robotic aspects that Kraftwerk had emphasized, and he works with Brian Eno. And here's the track "Beauty and the Beast" from David Bowie. David Bowie from his Berlin period when he was collaborating with Brian Eno and to me this is very very much a signpost for the future that you know one one thing that sort of fascinates me about British punk is you know in America we sort of chewed on punk for a decade and a half in England boom it explodes takes over the culture and then immediately is discarded and I think Bowie is one of the reasons because he's showing the way forward with this Mm. collaboration with Eno and yeah, and 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 how how you can integrate these kind of cold icy textures into a pop context? Yeah, I mean, so um, yeah, I think what you say about punk is true in the sense the original generation of punk, yes, was very very short lived. It very short lived became a cliche. What was important was post punk, but it was what was punk. The moment of punk in terms of was important in terms of cleaving rock history in two, certainly from the kind of UK perspective. I don't think it was quite. As you say, it didn't quite pan out like that in America. It took a while for Simpat to come through, and there's probably a different sense of the rock timeline in America. But in the UK, there's always a sense that, like, there was before punk and after punk, and these are two very different um, worlds. Now, yeah, so David Bowie, yes, he certainly did survive punk um, because, um, you know, he, he, he was just he was just a very revered person. He was been revered by a lot of people that were kind of making that means are involved in those groups in the early 70s, he would have been a hero to them. And also, yeah, you, you talk about, yeah, going to Germany and going to Berlin. And this was very important, I think, for, in terms of attitudes towards that music, towards groups like Cannes, towards, you know, Armenia and um, 
um, and that is from and people like that and Noy, is that he basically gave the music his blessing. It was an extraordinary sea change in attitudes towards um, crowd rock and West German music um, before Bowie and after Bowie going to Berlin. Before that, you get all these ridiculous headlines and even tapes like Enemy, right? It's all like, Achtung, you know, the ways of making you listen, you know, all these stupid sort of jerks. <laughs> Yeah, these dark sort of Nazi illusions because people just equated Germany with the Nazis because of films and stuff like that. That was practically the only way in which they appeared on telly, which is on war films. And, you know, they even, in, and, and it, when Kraftwerk first appeared in Enemy in a feature, um, they used as a backdrop to this double page spread um, an image of the Nuremberg rally because you know, well, that's, that's German, isn't it? You know, so it was kind of ludicrous. There was this kind of condescension. There was people causing that kind of Basil Fawlty sort of type era of like, don't mention the war and all this kind of stuff. However, when Bowie comes along, comes along and offers his blessing, suddenly anything Germanic now takes on an air of cool. And I think that's why in that first wave of like post-punk, you get groups like you know, Spandau Ballet, Bauhaus, you know, that kind of reflected in anything German sounding isn't comical anymore. It's, it's the apex of cool. So that was a tremendous cultural contribution, I think, that Bowie made through his curiosity. I and mean, in terms of his music, as ever with his music, he sort of he doesn't completely sort of metamorphose. He takes on, in a slightly kind of communion-type way, elements of this kind of music for a while, and then moves on to something else or whatever. I think he always maintains a basic sort of solid, sort of, his songs are always pretty kind of solid, and he maintains sort of bowiness, essentially. Brian Eno is an interesting source. Also, Brian Eno was very influential on David Bell and his taste. And that. I always consider Brian Eno to be an honorary crowd rocker, insofar as I think that from his early days at Roxy Music, he, you know, he, he'd operate, you know, the, the, the synth there on stage. And he would almost, he wasn't, um, in a sense, he was almost like an outsider in terms of like being a musician. He was, um, um, he, he's, he, he'd almost like make these sonic interventions, really, in, in, into the songs. Um, um, and what was great about Brian Eno, especially watching as a kid, is he almost like personified or represented the otherness of like electronics and in pop, you know, the, you know, their kind of alienness, which is something that these days is impossible to get back because the electronics are so ubiquitous. He really represented that. And then he goes off and he's very kind of cerebral. And I think that um, he understands that there's a particular quality to certain groups in Germany, like um, people like um, Cluster, for example, who became great friends with. It's almost painfully, it's almost like watercolours, and there's almost a kind of overlap between um, music and the visual arts. And like the way that like, they presented pieces, it was almost like the kind of, yeah, it was almost like the sort of titles that you get on a kind of wall in a gallery or whatever. And the pieces have that, you know, what comes the ambient quality. And so Branino occasionally gets down systematically producing a series of ambient records of his own in the late, in the 70s, which have, an eventual influence. I'd say eventual because they didn't immediately. I think, you know, music films, music airports, whatever, they were all made in the late 70s. But throughout the 80s, I think the 80s was such a busy, frac frantic, fractious decade that there almost wasn't the kind of collective headspace or something like ambient. And the, the only ambient only really kicks in in the sort of post-rave era when people start having that kind of, you know, the whole chill-out thing, the whole, um, when you get groups like the Orb, even like KLF doing their chill-out album. And suddenly, people are kind of, at last, ready to listen to um, ambient music en masse. And so there's a sort of, 
evasive response by about 10 or 12 years, you know, to the innovations that he created in, in the 70s. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to me that I remember when the Ambient albums came out, my older brother was a very sort of adventurous mm. 70s type yeah. guy who straddled everything from prog rock to new wave and a, a tiny bit of punk. And he had those Ambient albums, but I, I can remember the discussion, people were sort of flummoxed by them. But you know, years mm. later, when I'm chasing girls and trying to score X and, and, and checking out the <laughs> rave scene, you know, for those reasons, more than the music... Suddenly, you know, the ambient tent, the chill out tent made perfect sense after you've danced all night and you're exhausted yeah. and the dawn comes up. Uh, Aphex yeah. Twin really hit the spot in a big way. Yeah. And, it, and it seems like ambient has become uh, sort of a mega genre that contains many genres within it and has definitely yeah. been very powerful over the last 30 years. And, and so I thought that was a pretty logical spot for you to start your part four was, you know, with Brian Eno and, and Ambia. But then the next section you cut to is cutting up the world where you, where you talk about people uh, sampling. Essentially, you start with Cabaret Voltaire, mm. you know, throbbing mm. gristle, that industrial English scene. But that, that also includes hip hop. And, and you end the chapter with mm. Jay Dilla. And yeah. I'm sort of jumping around because I'm in a rush to, to get to the big points yeah. that you make about the 21st century and but you you know several times you refer to the 21st century as the aftermath or the echo of the 20th century that ambient is yeah. the space after go is left when the center is collapsed i mean do you think that's a fair assessment of the 21st century music or is this just us old middle-aged guys oh i mean it's a sad thing that when you say something like that yes it could just be a reflection of one's age or whatever but i don't think it's just that i think that clearly there were all these kind of starting from virtually zero, say at the beginning of the 20th century, there are all these kind of huge, colossal events and evolutionary strides and developments that take place. It always comes to ecological thing. I'm not, I'm not, I'm ne- well, I would never ever say, I'm not going to see the say, oh, kids today, it's just, uh, you know, we had the Sex Pistols, we had the Beatles, what have they got? Ed Sheeran, that's nonsense as far as I'm concerned. All of these things are to do with ecology, they're to do with structure, they're to do with like ideas inevitably kind of running their course. Happened to jazz. I mean, you know, you never get, um, you know, jazz has its kind of, you know, evolves throughout the 20th century and then reached this point of abstraction or whatever. And it's hard to do kind of big popular things with it anymore. Everything becomes neo after that. And I suppose, yes, in terms of the aftermath, everything is kind of neo. It's almost like most of the sort of major things, all you can really produce now are kind of potentially infinite permutations, you know, especially using, you know, the means that electronic music puts at your disposal. And sampling, of course, you know, is a tremendous tool in that respect. I mean, I had slight misgivings when sampling first came out in the 80s, because it seemed trite in some ways, just quoting the past or quoting old bits of James Brown. It did seem actually a little bit kind of lazy, and also it seemed to be a little bit lazy, sort of feebly postmodern in a sense, and it was saying, like, we're all just sort of in the shadow of, like, giants, really. I, mean, I was much more interested in the way the Cabaret Voltaire didn't really sample. I mean, for instance, on a record like Slung of the Jesus, which uses a lot of like excerpts from a I mean, tele-evangelist, they just put a little microphone up next to a TV set, you know, and then record it onto tape, you know. So, um, you, you know, they, 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 there were ways in people like Holder Shukai and stuff like that, you know, they, they were, there were means of like making these kind of interventions, these real world interventions into music, which I think, I think it's one of the great radical ideas of the 20th century is the idea of introducing elements of the actual world into music, um, collapsing the walls between art and life. I mean, in, that's what happens with Picasso when he um, cuts out a little 
um, fragment of Le Figaro and sticks it on a canvas. That is a massive, massive paper to make about, you know, what art can potentially constitute, what its sources can be. So yeah, so you get sampling with that, and then sometimes it's just sampling other records, old records, or what have you. Um, I was especially taken there with a group called Young Gods, who they use samplers in a much more different, creative way. And in a way, I mean, I talk about in the book as post-postmodern, in a way that they um, they use different sorts of these, like classical music, they use old rock or whatever, but they kind of recycle it and, and intensify it in such a way as it creates this kind of really fiery, incendiary effect, as opposed to kind of postmodern. Meanwhile, hip hop, um, it's, yeah, public enemy, um, where they take, take, take Rebel Without a Pause, which splices, um, James Brown and Miles Davis into this kind of bizarre effect of like a kettle coming to the boil, this kind of recurring sound. I mean, yeah, the way that they use, they do that is, it's kind of, it, it's minimal, it's, you know, it's sort of impact again, it's incendiary, um, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's extraordinary, um, but, that 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 in itself petered out. I mean, you know, the, the, the late eighties public enemy stuff. Um, after a while, it became impossible to do that kind of thing. Yeah, for the law came in and and yeah, cracked down. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. still still very bitter and angry. You know, if you read those mm. trial transcripts, the judges were so palpably ignorant of music and yeah. seemingly civilization itself. Uh, yeah. But there's a couple more points I want to hit before we wrap. But first, I want to play our last mm. song and and. It was so hard to pick songs for this because you know there's so many great songs and so many points to exemplify. But but I had to go with uh, Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder's "I Feel Love." I Feel Love from Donna Summer in partnership with the German producer or Italian producer Giorgio Moroder. And you describe that as hitting your world in 1977 when you are, I believe, a preteen, mm. uh, like Skylab mm. falling out of the sky. Yeah, absolutely. 1977. It's funny, even the word now, the word the year 1977 actually still sounds futuristic. Um, I remember getting a three year diary in 1974, and eventually, you know, it always was in 1977. And it was, it was such a futuristic year. It was, yeah, things like Skylab in the air. You also had Star Wars, which, you know, hit that big year. Star Wars, you had Donna Summer. And yes, and it just really felt like popular culture was, was seriously kind of turning a corner. Um, but it didn't kind of, you know, it didn't, it didn't really mean any, you know, the fact that there was all, um, um, ET and things like that and close encounters. It didn't precipitate any actual exploration of the cosmos. I think it just seems to be more of a sort of turning point for popular music, becoming a kind of bigger, bolder, sort of brighter, more kind of turbocharged thing in, in, in lots of ways. Um, but absolutely, I mean, and, and, and that record still now, it, it's, it, you know, it, 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 lays, it lays a template. It's, it's kind of sad, though. I, I, I'm a bit ambiguous about it in the sense, um, or the ambivalent, I should say, there's this footage uh, at the time of um, Donna Summer playing this piece of music live. And you've got a kind of orchestra pit and all of these kind of bow-tied musicians, um, who are probably all union or whatever, they probably say, look, you can't, can't have a synthesizer, we've got to play this. And so 
so they're sawing frantically away trying to create that kind of sequence and trim effect um and it looks slightly comical but yeah there is a slightly kind of sad thing about machines is did put musicians on the breadline um it's an awkward fact there's, there's there's no getting you know it's one of those people that like goes to a supermarket and prefers to actually queue up um, to get an actual human being to kind of put my groceries through and not go to one of the automatic deals. You know, something like that probably does, it's one of those things that sits lingeringly and awkwardly with me. But um, having said all of that, um, you can't do that. The great thing about a record like I Feel Love is that on the one hand, it sets, you know, it sets a new agenda, it lays a template, but it retains all of its kind of original potency. You listen to it over and over again, and it hasn't diminished yeah not at all i mean you can still dance uh, your day away if if you pop that mm. on and and it's also a like craft work and and bowie and eno's collaborations it's very clear a signpost yeah. for the future i mean all of house music i think you can trace back to that combination of the synth driven sounds of giorgio moroder and then the african-american passionate singing of donna summer and then you know from house music you get acid house rave and and mm. emd and yeah. essentially all yeah. the music of the 21st century but there's one last little genre i want to hit which uh is is the hauntology you refer to mm. uh and and yeah. that that to me is one of the few sort of genres that is to me conceptually novel that's coming out of the 21st century. I mean, most of the, the, there's so many micro genres now, but to me, it's like almost all of them you can trace to some 20th century concepts that they're refining or, or exploring, but hauntology is different. Tell us a little bit about hauntology. What is it? Well, it's derived from this uh, um, term that's coined by Jacques Derrida, and, and it just ties in, I suppose, with the slightly kind of melancholic um, uh, uh, was underlying the book. It's the sense of, like, having to leave the 20th century, the fact that, like, lost, lost futures, essentially, the idea of, like, ideas that were, that, that were hinted at but um, never quite kind of came to be. And it's almost like there are certain musics which... Although they do belong to the 21st, they could only really happen in the 21st century. They are very much half and half the past, you know, trying to imagine um, these kind of shimmering potential possibilities of like how, you know, not just of like going to Mars or whatever, but how the human condition might somehow have been improved or it could have taken this sort of different kind of political pathways or whatever, or like humankind might have, you know, evolved collectively in some, in, in some better way. And, um, it's so, I mean, it's it, 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 people like Philip Jack, who's a Liverpool based uh, musician who just uses um, a turntable and he just makes music using these like little seven inch records of a single speaker, but using various things like pedals or whatever and everybody. And he creates this wonderful lute reverberating effect, um, taking this kind of records just from the vast unconsidered like detritus and piles and piles of recordings that have been made you know throughout recording history just taking out you know these inconsequential records and, and making something glorious out of them that's and it's very affecting also the use of crackle as well um which the caretaker another musician does um using crackle as a kind of a, a, a musical element you know the kind of the ravages of time you know the marks of um wear and tear um, I mean, I, I think there's a huge poignancy about the kind of best horse logical offerings. And then, of course, there's 
Texas's own William Brzezinski, um, who, um, and his most famous work is the disintegration loops. And again, it's kind of harking back to the past with a stack of tapes that of recordings, sort of Alan recordings he'd made um, sort of 20 odd years earlier, trying to pass them through, um, you know, we put them onto a kind of you know, more contemporary um, bit of hardware. And as he's passing them, spooning them through, the tapes have become so weakened with age that they're actually falling to bits. And the recording, actually, you can hear bits falling off, you know, this music as it's coming through. You know, you can hear it disintegrating as it kind of goes on. And that coincided with um, 9-11, you know, the first great terrible event of the 21st century. Um, he was in New York at the time um, when it happened. And, um, and that kind of conflation... Um, moved him to dedicate recordings to the victims of 9-11. And there's something about the idea, I suppose, of um, you know, nothing ever truly dies. Um, you know, the thing that there are memories of something abides. Um, something you also get in um, Gavin Bryant's Sink of the Titanic, um, which is inspired by this idea that Marconi had that, that, that sound sound never actually dies. It just halves and halves and halves and halves and halves and halves. It never reaches a zero. So in theory, you might, if a piece of the core, if a piece of machinery was powerful enough, you might actually be able to kind of hear a recording of, I don't know, the Sermon on the Mount or even the victims of the Titanic, you know. Um, it's, you know, so there's, it, it, there's a capacity for all of these sort of wonderful, poignant, very kind of wistful ideas. Um, for me, it's a kind of, in a sense, I, I tend to use it as kind of ambient medicine music. I find it very, very cerebrally stimulating music like this. Um, on the one hand, kind of restful and immersive, and, you know, um, but also, yeah, I, I use it a lot when I work, almost as a sort of all the wallpaper, but one that's kind of, you know, hopefully sort of triggering things, you know, creatively as I'm trying to write. Yeah, it's it's to me a very evocative struggle with the subconscious and and the disintegration tapes. I'm so glad you brought that up. It, it mm. it's very much sort of a metaphor for the way uh, in the 20th century we sort of I think had this illusion that we could capture sound forever and that and that we could record sound mm. and catalog sound yeah. and make it a commodity and a product and a keepsake. And the disintegration tapes, I think, as we've seen, it's you know these horrible fires at Universal Studios and other places. Mm. We might not have the 20th century archive that we thought we would have or not have it forever but here in this brief bit of the beginning of the 21st century we do have this catalog to listen to and that's the yeah. purpose of this show is to sort of excavate that and david uh it's been great fun having you on the book is future sounds the story of electronic music from stockhouse and the skrillex the author david Stubbs. thanks so much for coming on the show thanks very much for having me on it's been a pleasure Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Nate will be back next week with Jonathan Gould, author of Can't Buy Me Love, The Beatles, Britain, and America. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Future 
Sounds, the story of electronic music from Stockhausen to Skrillex, is published by Faber and Faber. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. Hey, this is Joe. And Ryan. From the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast. The history of rock music is littered with forgotten weirdos, eccentrics, and scoundrels. Highway Hi-Fi is an examination of the lesser-known but equally vital aspects of music over the past hundred years or so through its most enduring medium, the vinyl record. We cover records that were made for plants, truck-driving country songs, the mafia's ties to record bootlegging, the ill-fated turntables for cars, the Mexican Woodstock, Waffle House's record label, the murderous true crime roots of Stagger Lee, Leonard Nimoy's highly illogical folk albums, the flammability of the Butthole Surfers live shows, Serial Box Flexi Disc, the strange byproducts of the American private press trend, and so much more. Using trivia, deep dives into history and context, interviews, and curios from our record collections, we go track by track through the underbelly of music history to locate the roots of the world's fascination with vinyl records. Check out Highway Hi-Fi on all reputable podcatchers. We're a proud member of the Pantheon Music Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.